0: Finally, from so little sleeping and so much reading, his brain dried up and he went completely out of his mind. This is Dried Up Brain, and I'm Nate.
1: And I'm Andrea.
0: She is a librarian, and I'm a writer, and also she's my mom, and that makes me very cool. I think we covered this in the previous episode, or a previous episode. Who's to say? Uh, So what the actual podcast is, though... Is is a podcast about books, where we read things, and then we talk about them. And sometimes the things that we read are books of a comical nature. Occasionally, we'll read a a novel of a graphical variety, and that's what we did for this episode. We read Volume 6 of The Sandman, Fables and Reflections, and yes, I know it's not a graphic novel. It's a trade paperback and a collection of previously published single issues, but I was doing a bit, and I'm not going to not commit to the bit. I'm sorry, I'll do a lot of things, but not committing to the bid is not one of them. And you can sue me and you you can come and rend the flesh from my bones and tear my head off and throw me into the ocean. And I'm sorry. That's just how it's going to be.
1: Well, that's a very dramatic opening for this podcast, which is very dramatic in what we're talking about, which is volume six of Fables and Reflections of the Sandman series, It was published between 1991 and 1993, and it's six standalone interlude issues that have been compiled into this. Um, There's no overarching storyline. They're all independent, but there are some themes that are running through. One of them, there's a lot of stories about emperors and kings. There's a lot of stories that deal with Greek mythology. And there's very few stories that actually deal with the overarching plot of the Sandman series.
0: Yeah, so um, I think it's nine issues, actually.
1: It's nine issues?
0: Yeah, so it can be broken down into two overarching categories. And then there's two outliers. So one, two, three. four of the stories are categorized as distant mirrors these are all stories that are named after months and deal with kings or just the idea of monarchy in general and then three of the stories are called convergences convergences and those are stories about people meeting and telling stories and morpheus does not really figure heavily into any of these really and and then the two outliers are, uh, fear of falling, which is the first story, which is from a Vertigo preview anthology issue. This is like a short little story, and then kind of the centerpiece of this volume is the Sandman special, the Song of Orpheus, which is of course a retelling of the tale of Orpheus, who, if we learned in previous volumes, is Dream's son with Calliope, the muse.
1: Well, I'm just going to start out by saying that this is my least favorite volume in the Sandman series. And some of the stories I liked more than others, but I just really felt underwhelmed when I read this volume. Um, The stories are kind of weird and pompous, and they don't really fit into the sort of this aesthetic of the Sandman series. Um, I found it a very difficult volume to sort of find like what I really love about Sandman in it
0: yeah it's definitely probably the most uneven I don't know I think I feel pretty much the same way about this that I do did about Dream Country except this is just longer like Dream Country is kind of the same way where it was like about half the stories I liked like I liked Dream of a Thousand Cats and I liked Midsummer's Night Dream but I was you know if you're on Calliope and what's the one about element woman facade? Yes. And like this I feel the same way. There are there I think there are stories in this volume that I are some of my favorites. The distant mirrors I think in general are probably better than the convergences, but like I mean we'll we'll get into each of them, but I mean just off the bat I I really like the first distant Mirror story, 3 Septembers and a January. I think the second one or the I the second one is weaker. I don't, I, I have no idea how I feel about The Hunt, the first conversion story. The second, distant, the third mirror is August, I think is really good, but there's an element of it that we will touch on that I'm, if you're on. Well,
1: let's get started. Let's start at the beginning.
0: Yeah, this is not a good one. The first one. Fear of Falling from the Vertigo Preview. It's written by Neil Gaiman, penciled by Kent Williams, who also inked it. Colored by Sherilyn Van Valkenburg, And then was pretty much everything we've covered in Sandman is at a, as lettered by Todd Klein and edited by Karen Berger. And this one, it's very short. It's a story about a playwright and director who is getting cold feet as he nears a, a relatively major uh, production of one of his works. And he's going to basically ghost on everybody and then he has a dream where he meets morpheus and the whole thing basically amounts to a follow your dream shoot for the stars and if you fall you'll land in the moon type poster but with sandman
1: it was weird because that's what i thought it was like uh, morpheus was oddly like optimistic and uplifting and he was like empowering this director to follow his dreams which i kind of think like If that's a preview of what people, if their first experience with the Sandman series, if they're reading this Vertigo preview and they're like, oh, this is Sandman, this looks good, and then they read the actual volumes, that's not the Sandman they're seeing. You know, he's not a motivational speaker in in trying to be uplifting through 90% of the Sandman. And he looked really weird.
0: Yeah, Kent Williams' art is um, very, like, sort of sketchy and abstract. It's it's not bad, I don't think, but it doesn't feel – it felt it feels out of step, especially with the rest of the art in this volume, which tends to hue towards sort of more realistic proportions and, like, um, portraiture, but I don't know. I, I'm not in love with this story, like, at all. I don't know if there's much to it, really.
1: I mean, if you look at the same man that you see, like, in the Ramadan story, where he has this very beautiful – um almost stained glass inspired robe and then you see this sort of chopped up looking he looks like his face has been like dearticulated it's just a really sort of unpleasant looking face that they give him and he's kind of like he's supposed to be like inspiring this man but he looks like a wreck i mean he he
0: yeah yeah this weirdly you know what's a weird thing about this? It reminds me of the art on like early magic hearts.
1: Yeah. There it's was like just a lot like... of
0: this this sort of style. Do you think this story would have made more sense if the writer was Shakespeare? I don't really know why Dream would go out of his way to help this random writer dude. Yeah. I... We know that he has like a relationship with writers and storytellers, and that's important in later issues in this volume alone, but like it just seems weird that this one guy who has like performance anxiety would get a consultation from the Dream Lord himself. Especially yeah. when... I don't think this guy ever shows up again. Obviously, this was just a preview-ish, like, story and, like, a little issue that they would, like, give away for free or whatever, and you were just supposed to read this. I'm like, oh, Sandman seems neat. But this doesn't even seem like a particularly good...
1: That's what I was saying. Is it is it in there just because... It uh, it is Sandman, and they had to put it somewhere.
0: Yeah, I think this is just for completionist sake that it's in here. Yeah, which I, don't I know. like appreciate from like an archival perspective. I would like them to collect all the material related to Sandman, but this is pretty ephemeral.
1: Yeah, I don't. I mean,
0: I don't know if there's I don't much feel more feel like... Yeah,
1: there's really. I mean,
0: but then we get into the act to the first actual story in this volume, which is called. Uh, like I said, it's Distant Mirrors, three Septembers and a January, with uh, pencils and inks by Sean McManus, colors by Daniel Vazo, letters by Todd Klein, and then it's edited by Karen Berger and Alyssa Quitney. I really like this story.
1: I knew that you would really like this story because fundamentally it reminds me of a G.K. Chesterton story. Oh,
0: he's Yeah, it's very clearly influenced. I mean, we know that Neil Gaiman loves G.K. Chesterton. He's come up a ton in Sandman. He'll come up again in this Actually, And this is like definitely drawing on stuff like the Napoleon of Notting Hill. And this story is a sort of retelling or it's a, a adaptation of the story. of One of my favorite weird figures of American history, which is Joshua Abraham Norton, a.k.a. Emperor Norton, Norton, the first emperor of the United States. It was a dude who lived in the mid-1800s in San Francisco who declared himself the emperor of the United States and was sort of this figure of public curiosity in the area for a long time who's kind of stuck around as one of those sort of weird tidbits of Americana and so the way this story handles him is that just like in real life he's had this really disastrous failed business venture that involved like shipping rice I think Uh and in this story despair and desire are sort of fighting over this guy in a very sort of like Capricious God way that we've seen those two characters act before, and despair calls Dream to intercede in this, and he takes part in their contest, essentially saying, like, I can keep this dude who's so obviously going to fall into one or both of your realms out of your clutches. And he does this by, you know, giving this dude a dream and a hope and instilling in him this idea that he is the Emperor of the United States, and so the title comes from the fact that we touch in on this guy's life across three septembers and a january as he you know lives as emperor norton the first and becomes this public figure and then the story sort of culminates in this moment where he's called to some shop to do some business right and he encounters the king of pain who's like a reanimated zombie that it turns out desire had created to try and tempt this dude with like a faustian bargain for like a beautiful wife and power and riches which this guy ultimately turns down because like the dream is enough for him and he's kind of presents him as this sort of zen-like figure um and then he dies
1: i think what's interesting is i mean you get to see a lot of the endless you get to see despair and dream and desire all together interacting which is interesting I think it's also interesting because it shows a little bit of Death's ambition to mess with Dream. Mm-hmm. Now she's like involving desire in a in a bet that's going to affect the way Dream sees things. So I thought that was interesting.
0: Well, yeah, essentially what this story serves as is a prequel to the doll's house. At the end, Desire is so insulted by the way that Dream has like rebuffed their advances on this guy and fucked with them that they make the decision to do the scheme that they do in the doll's house by trying to trick dream into killing one of his kin.
1: Yeah. and I think this sort of the artwork is very sort of, um, it kind of reminds me of almost like if someone was doing a modern interpretation of like a Charles Dickens story and they were animating it sort of that style. I mean, I thought it was interesting and, you know, I like this idea, of, like, he does this again when he talks about the, or- when he does the Orpheus story, where he takes an existing story or an existing person, he inserts the endless into that storyline and creates a new story arch. It's kind of like what he did with the um, Midsummer Nights. Like, you know the story of Midsummer Night, the play, the tempest, and all these different Shakespeare elements. But then he inserts characters from the same man's story into those into this different story and kind of makes a new kind of modern myth or modern fairy tale out of the story.
0: Yeah, yeah. Also, uh, Mark Twain shows up in this.
1: Yeah, that's true. Mark that's Twain true. is
0: is friends with Norton in the beginning, and Norton praises him for his you know fabulous jumping frog story and gives him like an official commission as American storyteller. Um, and it's interesting because it's sort of like mirrors the relationship that dream has with shakespeare but in like a much sort of goofier and more mundane way
1: right right and i think it's also um like gaiman taking a nod to writers that inspire or interest him so i mean definitely like i said gk chesterton and mark twain
0: yeah yeah i mean like i said i I like the story a lot but also i feel like it's kind of it's it hits a lot of my very specific like buttons. It's almost unfair.
1: But I think it's almost like the story with Hob. I think like it's an interlude story. It's well written. It's well designed. It's very nice. It's attractive. And even though it doesn't push the main storyline, it fits in that genre. It feels like a Sandman story. It feels like a story about the analyst. Some of the other stories later on, and like the first one, if Fear of flying, they don't really feel like yeah. They're in the Sandman world.
0: Yeah, the, yeah, I get what you're saying. Also, this one like very specifically recalls events from stories we've already seen, like, explaining... I, I think this does a lot to make Desire and the Dollhouse more, like, less of a cartoon villain. I mean, it's still like, oh, they're being motivated by petty revenge, but at least we understand what happened. And it's not just like, oh, Desire... Is just cruel to dream right. for no reason.
1: Well, I kind of feel like with desire and maybe with um, the one who delusion, the kind of despair. despair I feel like, unlike death and dream. They are more sort of driven by their base desires. There's less... Well, it's right there in the name. Right. It's kind of like they're more chaotic. And death and desire... I mean, death and... Yeah, desire is probably more... Less chaotic. But they seem like they're more in control of their own feelings and the things that they do.
0: I think the Endless exist on a spectrum um, based on how much they require human action. So, like, desire and despair are based entirely on human action and feeling. So, they're the kind of the most, like, human in sort of like a venal, petty sort of way. And then you have death and um, destiny, who are concepts that exist independently, for the most part, of humanity. And they're sort of more mature, more detached. Um, more, they've got, got, like, a more nuanced understanding of the world. And then kind of in the middle you have destruction and dream who like you humans don't need to choose to dream but dreams only exist if like people or animals are dreaming them and destruction is a thing that happens on its own like nature destroys things but also it's a thing that can happen through human interaction so they're these sort of we see them as the most conflicted of them like dream and destruction, which we don't know a ton about him yet in the story, but we'll meet him in the next volume and he shows up in the song of Orpheus. They're sort of more like conflicted about their own nature and their sort of their internal humanity is in conflict with their more sort of abstract divine nature. I think that's really interesting.
1: Yeah. I think that, I mean, that makes a lot of sense, but like especially like in this story with despair It's almost like she can't control herself. Yeah. Like, death can scheme, and she has this long game that she's playing, and she's... And despair's kind of, like, chaos, like, right there. Like, there's no control. Like, she wants, like, something to happen. She wants despair to manifest. And she can't, like, manipulate this man to get it. She's almost, like, screaming and trying to terrify him into doing what she wants. She can't... She's not... I guess she's despair. She can't reason with people. But I feel like the base nature of some of the endless and their like impulse driven behavior makes like more chaos. But some like one of the endless like death, her sort of control and her like being so focused on her facilities, like she's there and she's thinking and she's planning. She's like able to have like higher level thoughts, almost like some of these are just kind of like. Physical embodiments of emotions that they can't really even control.
0: Yeah, no, I I agree with that. Yeah, because like despair's plan is just to make bad things happen to this guy and to not understand why he's not broken once those things happen to him. Desire's plan is much more, you know, like you said, it's it's to send this avatar to try and tempt him, and it's it's more complex. But I think that speaks, like you said, that speaks to their nature. Like despair is. It's a feeling of, like, bleakness and emptiness, and it's not, like, a subtle tool.
1: That's why I kind of get, like, more agitated at the things that Death and Morpheus do, because it seems like they're...
0: You mean desire? No,
1: I mean death, because...
0: Death doesn't seem to really scheme to me.
1: She... I thought it was very clear in the dollhouse that she was trying to get dream to do something which is to murder one of his own relatives
0: that was desire
1: that was desire okay
0: all right yeah
1: yes then i do mean desire
0: is the one that that well oh god let's say this but right death now
1: death is also she also is always ma- like in hob like she's making him make deals with her and have competition so i kind of feel like she maybe death and desire are the on the same spectrum of like manipulation
0: i also yeah that maybe but i think that does death is to me, like I said, more aligned to destiny, I think. We see, as we'll see in the the Song of Orpheus, like, it feels like a lot of times death just, like, sees the shape of things and has to do things according to the rules. Like, there's a part in the Song of Orpheus where she says, um, she's asked if she can see the future, and she says, no, after the future, there's just me.
1: Right. Right.
0: Like, it's interesting because, like, there, she's clearly, like, amongst all the Endless, probably the most self-aware. But she also seems to be the one—she's aware of the fact that she is a, like, unstoppable elemental force of the universe.
1: Well, maybe that's exactly what I was trying to get around. Maybe, like, you know, despair and— I keep forgetting her name. She has two names. Delirium. Delirium. Maybe they are less self aware. Maybe that's
0: Yeah. I guess Delirium is the odd one out. She's when I was going through their characters. I mean she's definitely so far at least the one who has the least I mean, I guess except for Destruction, we've literally only seen this one time. She's got the least um characterization.
1: You well, know, I think like even Destruction, he's so undefined as a character that he cannot be self aware. Because he's just an entity that doesn't really exist, only mention.
0: Yeah, but I mean you know, he's kind
1: of like off the stage like there's another brother like Well
0: we'll see well the next volume, Brief Lives, is like very much deals with like what is this dude what happened to that guy and what yeah. what's his deal and we'll we'll see that. Um, do we have anything else to say about Three Septembers and a January? No, it's it's
1: a beautiful story. It's well written. It's very... I like the artwork. It's very rich. Very sort of 1800s kind of aesthetic. I really like that.
0: Uh, it made me cry at Yeah, the end when he died. It was
1: very sad. It was very emotional. I think it's one of the best written stories in this
0: Oh, yeah. It's definitely my favorite of, of the ones here.
1: Let's talk about the next one, which is Thurbidor.
0: It's another distant mirror story... This, i wish this one was better
1: i do too because i got excited cuz I, I this is like the con- chronic problem i have with the constantine family is like they always make me excited and then they always let me
0: down so this premise of this story it's real. the premise is really good which is that um the french revolution is happening and orpheus is alive and talking head is in the possession of the revolutionaries and like kind of like a spy master or like a mercenary or like you know it's like a spy story morpheus hires joanna constantine who we last saw in men of good fortune which is my actual favorite sandman issue um he hires her to infiltrate france and to retrieve the head of his son and return it to the like monastery where it's supposed to be but we don't really get to see any of the infiltration stuff. It just sort of jumps to her um getting found out and getting captured by Robespierre's men and being held in prison, and then she has kind of a confrontation with Robespierre, which is where she accuses him of being an incel, and then uh she escapes with the head and returns it to the monastery. And it's really it's I had a weird arc reading this volume where I was like, this story and then the previous story, I was like, is Neil Gaiman a monarchist? Because this story comes down very hard against the French Revolution. Robespierre is portrayed as an unambiguously villainous figure. Um, The the actions being taken by the revolutionaries in the Reign of Terror are portrayed as being pretty universally horrific. And yeah, it, it... it made me start to think, like, is Neil Gaiman super into the monarchy?
1: Well, I think also sometimes people forget that Neil Gaiman is actually British.
0: Oh, I, know. I didn't forget that. But. but
1: I think, like, because he's so so much now associated with the United States, like, you know, British people have a weird relationship to monarchy in general that the United States, people in the United States don't really have. Sure. But I think the problem that I had not was like is he a monarchist or whatever, but it's like one, why was Orpheus just ahead? Like where did that happen? Well that's like, explained later. Yeah, life. I know, but I felt like that this story might have should have been placed later. And then kind of was like the same thing that you had, like, okay, now she's all of Joanna's all of a sudden a spy and she's able to have the powers to infiltrate the French Revolution. But then, you know, she's still being, like, harassed by, like, street thugs. Like, she should have just kicked those guys and been done with
0: it. Uh, Thomas Paine appears in this story. As, like, a prisoner. And, I mean, he's, (laughs) like, I don't, I don't know. This seemed, like, weirdly unnecessary to, to have this historical figure there.
1: But it's also, like, if in the Song of Orpheus morpheus puts his son's head on the island and has the priest protect it how did the french revolutionaries get his head and what were they doing with it and then why all of a sudden if he constantly says orpheus you're you're no longer my son to me i don't want to have anything to do with you why does he spend so much time like dicking around in his life like i don't understand this
0: um well I, i mean i do kind of like that particular last element of this thing where it's like Dream is more hum like Dream's arc is like acknowledging his humanity and realizing that he's more human than he wanted to believe initially. And so like the idea that he he can't really let it go and he's still even though he's trying to like present this front that he's like a you know, abandoned and forsaken Orpheus, he still has to kind of like stick around and um you know, keep checking in on him or whatever. I will say that um Orpheus just being ahead does go back to the original Orpheus myth. Yeah, it's not like if you hadn't read the Song of Orpheus yet, reading this you wouldn't necessarily be like, "Why is Orpheus ahead?" Because it's like he does get his head ripped off in the myth. But it's still like,
1: but it's kind of like, would you like to see a story arc where it's Joanna and the head of Orpheus traveling around through time solving mysteries?
0: Yeah, I would have rather liked to see a story that was about her infiltrating, like, the France, revolutionary France and, like, dealing with that. And, and this wasn't really that. It was mostly just, like, a story about how um, reason and logic is is mean and bad and, and kings are good. I don't know. I don't know what this story was even trying to say. Except that he really doesn't seem to like Rose Pierre.
1: Yeah, well. Or
0: St. Just, who's just kind of, like, his toady in this.
1: Yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, I didn't get that. I just didn't get it. Can, can, can that just be my comment?
0: Sure. Also, the lettering is really bad in this one.
1: Yeah, it was really hard to read. It all really the, was.
0: All, it's, so it's like supposed to be, I think, her, Constantine's journals, right? And it's written in like a handwriting font, and it's very hard to read.
1: And I think because the story was so long and there was so much going on, there were so many panels... Yeah, And like each page, the font was very small, you know, and it was like, I mean, it was weird, very weird.
0: Yeah, I wasn't a huge fan of the story, <laughs> I, especially because it seemed like it was going to be so cool. Like I, I felt that the I kind of forgotten about this story. And then when I started to read it again for this this read through for the podcast. I was like, oh, shit, what, what is this? And then I was like, oh, OK, that's why I didn't really remember it, because it's not that great do you want to move on to the next one
1: yeah so the next one is called the hunt and it's about a young man who gets he meets a traveling peddler who gives him a miniature of a beautiful princess and he becomes obsessed and he wants to meet her so he goes on um, a journey to try to find this woman
0: yeah this is very clearly like a thing that Gaiman has done before where he riffs on fairy tale tropes. Like, you know, this guy sets out on this journey, meets the peddler, he stays at a disreputable inn and is nearly killed by the guy. He meets a stranger on the road three times, he escapes from prison. It's also all framed as a story being told in the present day by a grandfather to his granddaughter.
1: And I think there's like a weird, like, part where the baba yaga shows up and you know she helps him but you know what i read this story and i was like okay this is neil gaiman riffing on this sort of fan fantasy fairy tale element and then when i read like the synopsis of it and i realized that the people were supposed to be werewolves and i like totally did not get that
0: i mean i got it it's this <laughs> very like it's just gradual reveal he keeps calling them the people and they live in the forest And you see him with like fangs a couple times, and then he chases after a deer and a girl and a woman who's also of the people. Like pounces on it, but like unarmed. And and then at the end, there's a whole thing about them meeting in the shape of a wolf and mating. And it's like also, so what's happening in the story is it's about this dude's quest to meet this beautiful daughter of the count. And then what it ends up being is sort of a roundabout story about how he ended up marrying this woman who was of the people. And then the reveal at the end is maybe the grandfather was the guy in the story the whole time. Yeah.
1: I think also, I mean, you said he runs into a stranger and he meets him three times. The stranger is actually Lucius, the librarian, who is looking for his lost book. This is mentioned, I guess, a couple of times in the story arc where. There's missing elements from the land of dreaming, and one of them is a book that he's looking for, and it's clearly revealed. and I think it's called the M- the Merry Comedies of the Redemption of Doctor Faustus by Christopher Marlowe.
0: Yeah, so it's another one of those books that never got written that's in the library in the dreaming, which is cool. Like I like that idea, and that it's interesting to um, return to that here.
1: Yeah, but I, I couldn't understand why he, the grandfather felt compelled to tell like this uninterested granddaughter this weird story about werewolves and how he and his he and his wife met and how they may or may not be werewolves from like an Eastern European country. It's like
0: it feels like a the story is maybe kind of a weird reaction to so like you know people will read a story from an older time or like a fairy tale and they'll be like this is bad like the moral of this story is incompatible with the morals of the current time and this feels like a weird reaction to that because like at the end of the story the granddaughter is like oh this is just about how the people should stick with the people and you're telling me this story because you don't like that my boyfriend's not of the people and the grandfather's reaction is like no that's not what the story is about it's like it's just a it's a story. And I don't I mean I don't necessarily agree with that that premise.
1: Yeah, because she pretty much tells him that it's sexist, and he's like, "Oh no, it's not sexist. It's just how things were before we came to here."
0: Yeah. So I mean, like, I guess there's something there about like the interaction between the past and the present. There's also another recurrence of the crystal heart imagery. Yeah,
1: yeah. She... Which
0: I'm not sure where that's good, the relevance of that here, but but he has got the emerald heart of Koschei the Deathless, maybe, or maybe he doesn't. And he pays the Baba Yaga with it, um, who helps him fly to the castle. And um,
1: Yeah, I mean, it was an interesting story, but it really didn't have any... I mean, you could take it or leave it.
0: Yeah, it was fine.
1: But, um, so the next one is my least favorite. I really hated this story a lot.
0: Okay, I think this... Okay.
1: Which is like, it's called August, and it's about... um,
0: So the premise of the story is that Augustus Caesar, the successor to Julius Caesar, is very old. Oh, yes. And he has hired this... um, Dwarf. Yeah. Well, he's called the Dwarf. He's a little person, an actor named Lysias, to instruct him on how to look like a beggar and then accompany him... Into the streets to pretend to be beggars for the day. And then the story is pretty much just like the conversation that Lysias and Augustus have. And what it turns out is going on is that Augustus is deeply concerned. Well, let's call him Caius because that's what he insists on Lysias calling him. Caius is deeply concerned about the future of Rome. And... He's got plans about Rome that the Roman gods might not necessarily agree with. And at the request of Terminus, the god of the boundaries, Morpheus intercedes in a dream that Caius is having one night and instructs him that the Roman gods watch the Roman emperor. So if you want to plan without the gods seeing you, then don't be the emperor for the day. And so he goes and pretends to be a beggar so he can think. Without the gods seeing what he's thinking, and then what it turns out he's th- what he's thinking about is how to preserve Rome, and his plan is to cease expansion. Which, like, if you know enough about Roman history, it turns out he's pretty much right. One of the most commonly accepted causes of the fall of the Roman Empire is just that they couldn't they expanded too far and couldn't control their borders and fighting inside. Of Rome at the same time, and the whole thing collapsed. Um, and then it, it's all for naught. Ultimately, he's he's not able to control the dudes who come after him, who are, as Lysias points out, are you know m- you know, madmen and bastards and just bad dudes in general. We also find out that um, as a boy, he was raped by his uncle. And then maybe a lot of what's going on with him in this story is his response to the trauma from that.
1: Now, it's his uncle, Julia, Julius yeah. Caesar. Okay, so he, a lot of the scheming that he's doing is some kind of backward revenge against how Julius Caesar treated him. Maybe. And I think there's a lot of, like, talk about how he admired Julius Caesar and he thought that Julius Caesar was taking him under his wing to mentor him Mm -hmm. to be the emperor and he kind of treated him terribly and did not prepare him for being the emperor so the lot of what the scheming that he wants to do is to bring about the end of the fall well the fall of the Roman Empire as a sort of way to seek revenge from julius it's very complicated I don't,
0: I don't think that's what's going on i don't think it's a revenge thing i mean i definitely think he's traumatized by what happened with caesar and we see that he like has trouble sleeping at night and has these like awful dreams and he, he has to call in storytellers to tell him stories to to comfort him um on his restless nights of sleeping i do think like he the point that he makes to Lysias over and over again is that he he is motivated by a genuine desire to preserve Rome and that he sees like these two futures, one in which, you know, Rome has expanded out across the world and one in which Rome is destroyed. And it's unclear which future he's trying to bring about, but I, I don't necessarily know if he's, he's plotting, if it's like a revenge on, on Caesar, or if that's just in there to serve as like context for why Caius is the way that he is. And there's a lot in this story about like what a leader is and what a leader needs to do and and Caius talks about this idea that like he, the, if the people wanted to they could just kill him like they could just rise up and and remove him or he could just give the republic back to the people and about like the necessity of for a strong leader, and then then the story itself it sort of refutes, not refutes that, but it brings up this idea that like a strong leader is all well and good, but if the next guy is not as smart and uh, as altruistic or as committed as the previous guy, then most of what the previous guy did isn't going to matter all that much. I I actually really like this story. I'm iffy on the the rape part. I don't know about how I feel about that. But I think, like, this story is super relevant. Like, there's this whole part in it where Lysias and Caius are talking about what it's going to be like after he dies. And they're bringing up this this idea that, like, the Romans would deify their former emperors. And he's saying, like, oh, yeah, when I'm going to be, a, when I'm a god, when I'm dead, I'm going to be a god. And, like, that's what that's going to mean is that, like, all of my sins are going to be forgiven. And... You know, they're touching on this idea of, like, how we handle the legacy of leaders and rulers and important men and the way in which we sort of whitewash their more awful actions and, like, recast a lot of those actions as being for the good of, you know, the Republic.
1: I think that maybe this just really—you read this, like, right at the perfect time, you know, because this is exactly what happened. You know, we were dealing with the loss of the president. Yeah. And, you know, all the news— was sort of positive and, you know, there were all these homages to the work that he had done, but no mention of, like, the endless wars that he had started. And it's almost like the same thing. My question is, what does this have to do with the endless? It just kind of felt like he wanted... the Same thing. He wanted to tell this story and he was telling this story, but it really wasn't relevant to the overarching storyline.
0: Okay, well, the problem with that... Okay, so I think the thing with the distant mirrors is... What they are actually all about are stories about the deaths of kings, and I don't want to spoil anything, but that concept's going to become incredibly relevant. right.
1: I understand that you know there's there's this preparatory ground laying yeah. that's happening throughout the you know the first seven volumes of the Sandman until it comes to you know the sort of mm-hmm. the climax at the end. But I really kind of felt like. I don't know. I don't know if I just didn't relate to it. It just wasn't interesting to me. I had like, I have like a weird disinterest in anything that's Roman or ancient Roman. I, you know, I read I, Claudius. I didn't like it. I kind of it's feel m- like.
0: Nice I, Claudius reference in this.
1: Yeah, there is an, there is an I, Claudius. But it's, it's kind of like maybe like, you know, people are like, oh, I don't like to read mysteries. Maybe I don't like to read books about Roman history. Maybe that's my like least favorite you know, scenery that you can use in a story. I kind of felt like the artwork was kind of, like, grotesque. You know, they had these, like, fake boils. But it's just, like, everything was, like, exaggerated and very, like, detailed, like, physical deformities and weird sort of, like...
0: The art's by Brian Talbot. I really like the art in this. He also draws a song of Orpheus. I think he does some, like... It's the a own... very, like, frank and straightforward portraiture of like human beings and and they can be a sort of grotesque and ugly which i actually kind of like but i also think he does a lot of interesting stuff when it comes to like the dreams and whatnot and playing with the sense of space and scale and like when morpheus appears to caius in his room the like floor falls away into this endless series of reflections of the room and like it becomes this like impossibly tall Space with both of them sort of suspended in the air. And I think that's really cool. I guess I can understand why why he wouldn't like this story. And I, like I said, I'm also sort of conflicted on it. But I think, like, the portrait of Augustus as a character is really compelling. It's this idea that, like, okay, this is what a strong king is like. And he's he's scary. And he's he's conflicted. And he's not actually as powerful as he might be. And I definitely think it's easy to read the story as, like... I don't know. It's... it's it, he, I think it's interesting that you can read his actions, I think, very validly in two different ways. One being that, yeah, he is trying to get revenge on Caesar and his plan is to cause the fall of the Roman Empire. Or that his plan is an attempt to save the Roman Empire that no one else is going to understand and isn't going to work. Because ultimately, no matter how powerful he is, he's just one man and men are flawed. Yeah, I mean,
1: that's valid. I mean, that's all I can say. It, it, I'm kind of like, eh, it wasn't for me. Okay. But, I mean, I, I didn't have strong feelings about disliking it or, you know, or loving it. I was just kind of like lukewarm to it.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, yeah. you want to get into the next story, I yeah. guess? Yeah.
1: So the next one is called Soft Places, and it's pretty much a story about Marco Polo. And this is kind of like confusing linear plot points where it seems like there's a lot of things going on.
0: Uh, the Arch by John Watkins. Um Yeah, so basically what's happening in this story is Marco Polo is lost in the desert of Lot, which turns out to be one of the soft places where the boundaries between the dreaming and the real world are war are thin and time is weird, and he encounters uh, Rusticello of Pisa. Who will later be his um, cellmate and biographer?
1: Yeah, and it's kind. Of, this is what's kind of confusing me because it's like Marco Polo and his biographer they meet and they don't know each other, and then you realize that they're from two different time periods. Yeah, and Marco Polo doesn't know the man, and the man knows Marco Polo, and it's kind of like weird. And then at some point, like fiddler green shows up and he's kind of like you're in my spot like and
0: yeah so fiddler's green's there and he is trying to take a break because dream has some kind of new lady love and he keeps having long walks through him and he's he's tired of it and he has this conversation with rusticello and marco polo where he's like you know oh there's these soft places where the dream and the reality are blended together and you explorers are killing off these places by essentially filling in the map, and there's very few soft places left. Um, And it touches back on a lot of the themes, not a lot of, but some of the themes that are initially brought up in Thermidor, with this idea of, like, the conflict between fantasy and myth and, like, reality and our our constant desire to know and quantify things which is like i don't know it's an idea i'm not sure it's one of it's not the most interesting theme that sandman has but it's there they also encounter some like ghost soldiers who have been trapped and lost in the soft place for a while and then the end of the story is dream apparently having just got off from escaping and then confronting uh his captor, I forget what, Burgess.
1: That's what another part that confused me. So then, it, the same, so Samain shows up and he's also from a different linear plot.
0: Yeah, he's from like, the, from after, the very
1: beginning of the same man series.
0: Yeah. And then, Marco gives him some water and then as, in gratitude for that, uh, Dream sends him back to his father and his caravan. Also, this is the, uh, probably the hottest Dream has looked.
1: Yeah, yeah, he de- He definitely has the like T Rex aesthetic of glam rock, and yeah, his hair is perfect. Yeah, he's got like a little stubble. Um, he's a very masculine kind of Morpheus.
0: I mean, this story's fine. I like the art. I like seeing more of Fiddler's Green. I mean, I think like Marco Polo and rusticella Pisa are interesting figures, and I kind of think I, I would have liked again, like the Thermidor story, like. I feel like there's a more interesting Sandman story to tell about these two guys, especially in in relation to Fiddler's Green, who's like represents this like unattainable uh, goal of exploration. Like it's the paradise every sailor is looking for. And Marco Polo is like the sort of biggest cultural um, avatar of the idea of the explorer or the traveler. Like just having them meet up and like share stories around a campfire is fine But I feel like it could have been more interesting. I do like the idea... I do like where this slots into Dream's character arc. Like, we talked a lot about how part of why Volume 1 is so good is this gradual character arc of Dream becoming more understanding and forgiving. And this, like, moment of grace and mercy that he has with Marco Polo. Being part of that, I think, works really well. But, like, I don't think ultimately the whole thing was all that necessary.
1: I thought it was interesting, too, because this sort of harkens back to the story of Princess Barbara and the cuckoo. And it's very clear that the land that they're living in is one of the soft spaces that is being devoured and disintegrating. So kind of like it shows you that there's this chaos, this sort of um un you know, unbalanced kind of activity that's happening in the dreaming where it's being restructured. He talks about this a little bit, you know, when he talks with um in the doll's house about the people who can affect the physical format of the dreaming. And it seems like like Fiddler Green is saying this, that so like Things are happening, things are being restructured, what people believe. And it's almost like his concept of, like, that becomes American Gods, where, like, the more that the veil is taken away and there's less mystery in the world, the less chances that there, you know, you're going to have these sort of fantasies and these different worlds that can happen. So the more we know about the world, the less there is a chance that we're going to have a Fiddler's Green that we can go to. And I think that's interesting.
0: Yeah, it is interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, it definitely fit. Like I said, th- this is this feels more like a Sandman story than than maybe some of the other ones in this volume do. Like it does fit with a lot of the general sort of theme and vibes. But that's, it's also like it's meh. also
1: weird that it's like of all the like people that you could put together, you would put Marco Polo and Fiddler Green together.
0: But I'm saying it makes sense in that if you accept the idea that like Fiddler's Green is not just an idyllic. Mm-hmm you know pastoral land but it's a very specific thing fiddler's green is the place that people are looking for and marco polo is the guy who goes to places right like that makes sense to put them together but i don't know if this story is the most complete sort of exploration of that sort of connection and conflict but i I mean i did like it i'm always down to see more more fiddler's green because he's a great character
1: so let's get to the next part, which is kind of the Song of Orpheus, which is kind of like the nugget that's in, the, in this sort of chocolate bar, this like mixed nut bar of like weird stories. Because it's kind of like, it's the biggest story, it's the longest story, and it's the story that's most relevant to the overarching plot of the Sandman, and it's pretty much the story, it's the telling of like, the retelling of the Orpheus myth. But it's told in a way that has the endless in it.
0: Yeah. Well, that's another thing. That's another interesting thing in August is Caius knows about the endless and, like, brings up this idea that there are, like, secret... Because a big thing in, like, Roman mythology is, like, mysteries and you being inducted into the mysteries, which is the thing they talk about, and, like, mystery cults and shit. And he brings up the idea that there are, like, these secret gods that exist above the gods and aren't gods... And that people kind of know about and whisper about and they're reflected in stories like The Sandman. So it does bring up that sort of overarching myth of The Endless. And then in this we get to see it in action. We get to see how they slot into Greek mythology despite being their own things that are sort of separate from it. This is another story that is uh, drawn by Brian Talbot. Um, It's inked by Mark Buckingham. So there's less of a rough edge, I think, to the art than there was in the August story. Um, yeah, so, I mean, it's the story of Orpheus, so it starts on his wedding day, uh, to Eurydice, and his family is all there, and because Dream is his father, that means we get death, and desire, and despair, and destiny, and delirium, and then destruction, or Olothros, who, this is the first time we've ever seen him, who's portrayed in this as, like, this enormous bear-like man with a huge bushy red beard who's, like, very animated and affectionate. And on their wedding night, uh, Orpheus's friend, the satyr Orestius...
1: That's that's so weird. He (laughs) also just just calls
0: him a farmer. At one point, he's like, (laughs) hey, this is my new friend. He's a farmer. And it's like, he's very clearly, like, a goat man. (laughs) But okay. (laughs) Sure, dude. Whatever. There was,
1: like, once one panel where it's like Orpheus is talking to his mother and then he's just like sort of leaning over them like hi guys like I'm a full on like ginger goat man It's just like hanging out in your family wedding
0: yeah Orpheus is like straight up a hippie he and Orestius have a conversation and he's like "Orestes is like hey um are you gonna have roast ox at your wedding and he Orpheus is like no nothing shall living shall die at my wedding uh, and then in the nature of the satyr, oh so Restius makes a reference to like having a love who is lost and being lonely, but also in the nature of a satyr he's um super horned up.
1: <laughs> right. Obviously.
0: And he during the like wedding reception and dance, he pulls Eurydice aside and attempts, it seems, to assault her And she runs away and is bitten by an asp, as in the traditional story, and and dies. And then we cut ahead a while later, and Orpheus has become totally Byronic, and he can't get over the loss of his love, and he has become obsessed with the idea of her. Which is a thing that's brought up, like, it's a major theme of this story that's brought up over again and again, is this idea of, like, mourning by becoming obsessed with the idea of a person and not with the person themselves. He's, he is fixated on Eurydice, but almost never tells us anything about her. He never says a thing about her he misses, just that he misses having her. And he entreats with various endless for help in getting her back. And he's rebuffed by Dream, who just tells him, like, that way, that's the way it works. You're mortal. You live and you die and you lose people and it makes you sad. And then you just, you die.
1: Well, I think, like, Orpheus, his myth is that he's, obsessed with this con not necessarily obsessed with his wife but obsessed with this concept of being in love with something that he's he can no longer have yeah like that's his whole thing i mean he wants to play his music and he wants to pine for his dead wife
0: i mean we even see it when in their wedding reception he is playing the lyre and not dancing with her and then she dies and like, had he been cho- chose to spend time with her and not with like looking at her and not that it's his fault. It's pretty clear that like, you know, this is a story about this isn't a really a love story. This is a story about obsession.
1: But it's kind and of fixation. even after she comes back and she's he finds out his wife is dead. He doesn't hold his friend accountable. He's just like, shit happens. Now my wife's dead. Like, how am I going to deal with that?
0: Yeah. And so he goes to Destruction, or he meets with Destruction, and, like, laments his situation to him. And Destruction sort of reluctantly is like, well, you know, you can go to death, and she can do this, but, like, there are rules. And, like, trying to warn him, and Orpheus won't have it, and he meets with death in her realm.
1: I like how he goes to her apartment, and it's kind of like this ramshackle like walk new york walk up that's kind of like just an everyday apartment that you would just like anybody could have and and she lives there and then he's kind of like well this is weird and then he's like well let me make it more fancy for you and she transforms it into this like palace of the dead that he can kind of but it's more still to. not
0: like a greek aesthetic he still doesn't really like or Thracian, i guess orpheus is from thrace <laughs> Um, it still doesn't, like, she's like, is this better? And he's like, I don't know. (laughs) I guess.
1: It's kind of like he knows that he is related to the Endless, but he still doesn't understand what they're
0: about. No, he's still, he's still human. But I like how, like,
1: they show her apartment and she's got this sort of run down couch and and, then hanging on the wall is like... A portrait of the endless. Like here's my brothers and sisters just hanging out. I got a coffee mug and a you know some yeah. fish and yeah. Like, and she shows up. In she, her, they're just like us.
0: Yeah, she shows up in her like goth tank top outfit with the onk necklace. Um, and then she sort of again very reluctantly like acquiesces and is like, okay, you can travel to the underworld and you can entreat with, um. Hades to get her back but like I'm not gonna be responsible for what happens and this is the same part where she get we get this idea that like she she is ultimately powerless people die when they're gonna die and like fate
1: I don't know if she's ultimately powerless I saw it more as she just let them have free will and even though she could have interceded she didn't because the humans have free will and they have to make their own decisions.
0: Well, I mean, she says, like, it was her time to go. Like, she makes it clear that she does not choose when people die. Right. She's just there for them when they do die. And she does not, clearly does not approve of Orpheus's attempt to supersede the natural order of things and resurrect someone from the dead. But she ultimately, you know, gives him the knowledge that he needs to go about this.
1: Yeah, I think that, I mean, that's, I think a lot of what his father's interaction with Orpheus is is kind of like, humans be humans, you know, like he really can't do anything about how they're going to behave. He knows that Orpheus is going to make terrible decisions and do all these wacky things that he probably should not be doing. I mean, he goes down to the underworld and he makes a deal to try to get his wife back. And then he... He pretty much has a very simple deal, right? Which is, don't look back. And then right when he gets to the very edge, what does he do? He looks back.
0: But this other thing, like the irony here is that Morpheus and Orpheus are much more alike than either of them wants to admit. Because Orpheus is can be just as cold and detached as Dream is, as we see in his interactions later and in his general attitude towards Eurydices earlier on. And also... Morpheus goes on a journey to the underworld to rescue his lost lady love. We got a whole volume about that that ended in him having to do a bunch of business meetings. Right. But here's
1: the thing it's like if Orpheus is the son of Morpheus and Calliope, who is a muse, why doesn't he have any powers? Why is he just considered a human? Why isn't he like a demigod or whatever?
0: Greek mythology is weird. I don't know what to tell you.
1: I mean, let, let, let's call, like, Rick Royden. There's got to be, like, some kind of genetic something going on here with him.
0: I mean, he's an incredible songster.
1: I think it's interesting that, like, Orpheus is an interesting if you compare him to Daniel Hall, mm-hmm. who's kind of like, he's not Morpheus's son, but Morpheus obviously has some kind of connection to him. And Daniel has a connection to the dreaming world, which we'll see in the next story. But I was kind of like, he makes these terrible decisions, and then he gets through this long extended period of ennui where he's very upset, and he befriends a lot of animals, and that's one of my favorite scenes: the 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 wanna, drawing of him like just sitting down and playing like music for like a bunch of wild animals, and his mom shows up, and she's like, "I don't want to skip
0: over the, all the underworld stuff."
1: We'll get to it. Let's hear let's hear your take on this.
0: Well, I mean, he plays his. He goes to the underworld and first he meets um charon the boatman of the river Styx. he
1: plays him out he yeah. plays
0: the music for him and reduces him to tears and it's just this, like very quiet portrait of like the extreme loneliness of being the ferryman on the river Styx, unless like one time he gets to hear music and it doesn't make him happy it makes what him miserable he,
1: what do you think he heard what what was orpheus playing for him that drew him to tears
0: I don't think it matters. It's just whatever music it was. It was this, like, connection with, like, humanity. And I guess with, like, hope or something. Orpheus is on a mission. He's the only person he's he's seen coming down to the underworld who's not... Who's there with the assumption that he's going to get out of it eventually. Right. And not just there to spend his eternity standing around in a big pile near Hades and Persephone, who's almost certainly drawn to look like Jill Thompson in this. Um and then he has like a very brief encounter with cerberus and he we see him like play his music for hades and persephone and all of the assembled dead and the song is so moving that it like ceases the punishment of several of the condemned in tartarus and ultimately causes the furies to weep which is secretly the most important moment in all of sandman <laughs>
1: Do you think like <laughs> Hades looks a lot like Wolverine?
0: Yeah. He's like this like ragged, hairy looking dude with big bushy sideburns. Um, he's also got like lots of braids. He's enormous. Like that's another thing that like with the art that I think is really cool is like as um Orpheus approaches the throne of Hades and Persephone. they're they're first portrayed as just these like enormous black featureless obelisks in the misty distance and then the like way that the scale warps and changes as he approaches and we see the details filled in with all of the souls standing around and then these these obelisks become thrones with these impossibly large people on them. It's like really cool and does a great job of like I think oftentimes Sandman and Neil Gaiman's work in general sort of minimizes the gods like even Morpheus himself is often like openly mocking of the idea of gods and this does a lot to like show you the like awe and fear that someone would have encountering the the gods of the dead
1: well he does sort of impress Persephone when he plays the music and it's so beautiful that he renders the furies like speechless
0: yeah which is implied to be why he dies later um or not dies why he's torn apart later uh he also he stops some people from being punished there's ixion's wheel stops do you know about ixion yeah
1: i think that i think there's sort of like the big you know there's the like you know he's on the wheel and then there's the liver the birds perching out and i th- i want to say it's prometheus
0: no no it's like... it's um Titus. It's a, it's a different, they're, they're, uh, he's a guy who, he's Zeus's son. Right. And Zeus hid his mother underground when he was being born. And it's, he, he like got so big, he split up in his mother's womb. And so the earth had to carry him to term. And he, what was he punished for? They're all people that are, punishments involve like family and love. I think he, oh, he was manipulated by Hera into raping Leta. Yeah,
1: Tidius's liver.
0: Yeah, the mother of Artemis and Apollo. And so they killed him and he got this punishment. And then Ixion, of course, uh, was punished for trying to get it on with Hera when he was a guest of Zeus. Um, also, in another interesting mythology fact. The, re- the way that Zeus catches Ixion is by making a cloud into a facsimile of Hera. Ixion successfully gets it on with the cloud. The cloud becomes pregnant and gives birth to a guy named Centaurus, who then later goes to the mountain and bones a h- bunch of horses, and that's where centaurs come from. Oh,
1: well, that's, thank you. And then you.
0: Tantalus, I don't remember what Tantalus' punishment was for. Uh, I mean, his punishment is that he can't eat the fruit or drink the water. Yeah. I forget what he, he can did, never
1: though. be like satiated. That's pretty much his thing. It's interesting though, like you said, it's sort of it's an interesting take, like a, a flip on the sort of story of Orpheus and and how he's treated. It co- sort of gives you more of like a background of why he acts the way that he does.
0: Yeah, so. and so I mean, he's upset
1: he... because in essence his parents are divorced. And he doesn't have a good relationship with his father. And then when he has conversations with his father, his father just doesn't get him, and he doesn't understand that he wants to be a musician and he wants to find his dead wife. And his dad's like, "Come on, Orpheus, you got to get it together, you know."
0: Yeah. So stop he... living
1: in the forest with your seventy roommates that are all animals. Like you got to get your shit together. Oh,
0: that's the other thing we didn't talk about. Him and when Orpheus and him have a fight uh about whether or not he can bring Eurydice back. Uh he is like, You're not my dad. I'm not your son anymore. That's yeah. that's the end of their their conversation. And then And like
1: a true dad, like ten years later when they have another fight, he his response is, I thought I wasn't your dad anymore.
0: Yeah. So the story opens with Orpheus having a dream where his head where he's floating in the ocean and he's going to drown. And then Back in the Underworld, he gets the, the the thing like, oh, walk out of here and your Eurydice will be your shadow and do not look back. And he ultimately can't bring himself to look back. And the way, you know, the, in the initial myth, this is framed as just being like, you know, he loves her too much. To, to, he has to be sure that she's there. Whereas I think in this one, where it's very much about his obsession, it, it's... He, he thinks he's being clowned on. It's about him and his, like perceiving of of people looking down on him and his obsession with his own like failure and status as a tragic hero. That is ultimately what causes him to look back. It's not an act of love. It's an act of selfishness that dooms him and her. And now that he's back on earth, he can't be killed. And he has a his mom shows up and scares away all of his animal friends. And they have, she basically tells him that, Oh, dad and I got a divorce conversation and then she tries to warn him that the Bacchae or the Maynads or the, like, frenzied followers of Dionysus or are...
1: So why are they coming after him? Because of what he did in the Underworld?
0: Um, I mean, I think they're just there by coincidence, but the implication, I think, is that they've been driven there by the Furies.
1: Right. And they're depicted as these sort of wild women with, like, flowers and ivy in their hair, and they yeah. want to drink and eat and have sex and breastfeed bears.
0: <laughs> I mean they're like a they're like the the repressed elements of like the feminine let loose as this sort of wild untamable horde and uh and they, just, they tear him to shreds. They
1: just yeah, they just rip him to shreds. It's then, very graphic and it's sort of there's no text, there's just a montage of like this frenzied murder by these women that's happening. And, you know, it's only like black and white and blue. And then you see the red as the story progresses, you see more and more red and they're eating his heart. It's just very like intense. And then they just throw his head in the river and then he sort of floats along screaming his wife's name.
0: Yeah. And then that flows into the dream of him being lost at sea and he's, rescued by his where he encounters his father and they have the conversation where he's like um you're not my you said you weren't my son yeah. and then he tells him that he's arranged for these monks to take care of his head but they will never meet again
1: i thought it was interesting when when he yes when he washes up on the shore of the island there is a panel and his it's like orpheus's face and the same snake the asp that had bit his wife is right about to bite him as well and then morpheus steps on that and like intercedes and says you know like no you're not gonna die you're gonna stay on this island
0: yeah which is fucked up it's fucked up that he did that
1: yeah but i mean he's kind of very loving very lovingly cradles his son's head and puts him on the rock and and even though he doesn't want to he in a way does intercede and he gives them the best... That's the same thing with Morpheus. He doesn't always give you like... He doesn't help you in a way that you want to be helped. He helps you in a way that sort of maybe you need to be helped or the least path-resistant way that he can help you.
0: Sure. I mean, he
1: could help his son. He could do. He does more for Daniel Hall than he does for his own son.
0: Well, yeah, because this is Morpheus before his imprisonment. This is Morpheus that doesn't... This is Morpheus before he... (laughs) tells hobgadling that they're friends like this is this this is him when he's trying to convince himself that he's not human at all and so he he can't really help his son more than he does which and that sucks it sucks for him and it sucks for orpheus and it's like ultimately the whole it's a tragic story this whole thing
1: but i mean it's kind of like even though he has this when he has this like epiphany and this awakening of his like feelings he goes back to how he re he gets but he never goes back to his son in a meaningful way
0: well we'll see that in the next volume so there's a there's a there's a moment in the next volume about him and orpheus that that gets me real bad um yeah so the next story speaking of daniel hall
1: yeah i thought this was an interest like sort of interest like to have them both back to back was sort of an interesting like justification between like how Morpheus treated his son before his yeah. awakening and how he interacts with, I mean, Daniel Hall's not his son, but he de- clearly has this like paternal connection to him.
0: And he claimed him in, in the doll's house. Yeah.
1: And I think that's kind of like.
0: And he named him in um, uh, in uh, Season of Mists.
1: Now, did you like this story? Because I thought when I was reading this that you would be really into this Oh, story. yeah.
0: I like this story a lot. Yeah. So, yeah, this one's called The Parliament of Rooks. It's uh, drawn by Jill Thompson, who, like I said, I'm pretty sure Persephone is supposed to look like her in the previous volume. Um, there was another character in, at some point in this series where I was like, I'm pretty sure that character is supposed to look like Jill Thompson. Anyway, um, you might also know Jill Thompson as the creator of Scary Godmother. Uh, <laughs> she also drew uh, this book called *Beasts of Burden*, with uh, which is like a weird, like paranormal mystery, but the detectives are dogs. Anyway, uh,
1: it sounds great.
0: It is very good. There's a Hellboy crossover,
1: of course. That, um, they would have to be.
0: So this is another one of the convergence stories, and so what's happening in it is Lita Hall is like, or oh, stressed because she's a single mom because her husband was a dream ghost who yeah. got killed by Morpheus. <laughs> and then um, which
1: is want to happen
0: yeah and he hasn't come back as a baby and turned into dr fate yet so you know it's real stressful and
1: she's just a 90s single mom trying to keep it together yeah
0: and this really this story really does not acknowledge the fact that she used to be a superhero um but she's kind of like
1: she's a distracted mom so she puts daniel to bed for a nap and then she goes to talk have some girl time and talk to and read like People magazine and talk to her friend on the phone Mm -hmm. and meanwhile Daniel who has this connection to Morpheus can very fluidly very easily slip into the land of the dreaming and that's what he does as a little tiny adorable toddler who's wearing his overalls he goes in and he interacts with some of the side characters from yeah. the story. I mean,
0: that's the, that's the, one of the best things about the story. It's just the way that it, like, fleshes out all of these people in the dream. So he meets Daniel the Raven, and he meets Eve, and he meets... Um, Wait, is
1: Matthew the Raven?
0: Matthew the Raven.
1: Matthew's the Daniel's
0: baby. the bo- baby.
1: Daniel's the baby, Matthew's the Raven. He
0: meets Matthew the Raven, who gets a lot of characterization in this. He's very... I, I love Matthew.
1: And then he meets uh, Gregory...
0: He meets Gregory, the gar- who's uh, Kane's gargoyle. Uh-huh. And then they meet Eve, and they go to the House of Secrets where Goldie, the gargoyle, and Abel are. And then Kane shows up and is a huge dick throughout the whole story. <laughs> this made me, like... I don't know how you felt about their reaction, but this gave me, like, serious... I have a cousin who I'm very close to mm-hmm. who is kind of a bully. <laughs> and, like... That... They this like despite how exaggerated this were a lot of kane and abel's interactions and in this felt very real to me i don't it's know definitely
1: it's definitely more of like how yeah. siblings interact yeah but i think what's interesting about this is, is that this is exactly like you were saying this is like a traveler's meet at an inn and they tell stories so All these people meet at Abel's house and Daniel is the stranger who comes in and sort of implements this sort of storytelling sequence.
0: Yeah, so we get the three characters who are the the old hosts of the horror stories. So Cain and Abel and Eve, they all tell a story. And so the story that Cain tells is about the Parliament. He basically just informs us what a parliament of rooks is. The idea that, like, rooks gather... They're they're smarter than most birds, and they kind of have a language, and they will do this thing where a bunch of them will gather in a field, and one rook will, like, make noises and call and seemingly talk to the group of rooks for a while, and then at the end, they'll either all fly away and leave the one rook in the field, or they'll peck the rook to death. And Cain is very much... It goes back to this idea that keeps coming up of, like, mysteries and the unknown. And Cain is very much like, the mystery is what's important. It's important that we don't know what the Parliament of Rooks is. And he's, like, agitated at the idea that, like, Abel knows and he might tell them. And then Eve tells the story of Adam's three wives. So we get Lilith, who was created with him, who was cast out for being... Too, like, uppity. Saucy. Yeah, and mm. wanting to be on top. And mm. she becomes the mother of demons. You know, that's like a classic Apocrypha thing. And then there's Adam's second wife, who he sees being created, and he she's too human. And he's disgusted by her and his own humanity. And she doesn't have a name, and her fate is unknown. And then the third wife is Eve, who's created from his rib, and they eat the fruit together, and they're cast out. She grows old... And is maybe the mother of Cain and Abel, and this is like a weird story because it's unclear which one of these Eve is, or if she's any of them. It also brings up this idea that they may be all the same person because Eve tells the story, and then she goes, or and then she goes, and some would say Adam was only married once, and they're also right. And we see at the end when she's like outlining who the three wives are, they all look like her, and she also very, it's also very explicitly connects them to. The triple goddess and the kindly ones with Lilith as the, um, the mother, the unnamed wife as the maiden and Eve as the crone. And we know, like, from other parts of the story that, like, the triple goddess, the whole point is there are three people and also one person. So she could just be all three of the wives. And, like, the idea is that Adam perceived them differently at different points in their life and their relationship was different at different points in their lives.
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, because it's kind of like the middle one is, like, Adam rejects her because he doesn't like how the sausage is made.
0: Yeah, so it's like, you you meet a person, and there's this, like, intense connection, sexual or otherwise, and then, like, you, you come into some sort of first conflict, and then you get to know a person, and you become aware of all of their faults and flaws, and you see them as, like, a fully human being, and that can disgust you in a way, and then... Adam and Eve eat of the tree of knowledge together and they come to know each other and forge a real connection once they've gotten past all of the bullshit before and they go off to live, you know, a super long time and have a bunch of kids. And
1: But I think you're right about the, the, the three faces of Eve, you know, like the mm-hmm. famous thing. But I think there's a sort of um, concept that the kindly ones are like a woman in her phases of her life. Yeah. And I think that's what makes sense. Like, you know he, in the beginning, Lilith is independent, and I guess Adam is immature, and he doesn't want a helpmate. he doesn't want an equal in his life. Yeah. he wants to have this sort of very physical sexual relationship with this woman, and then when she becomes more independent than he wants her to be, he rejects her, and then he takes up with a a, a middle docile wife who is more like um. I know you hate that word, but that's exactly what she is. You know, she's like, uh, you know, she has a physicality to him that he is uncomfortable with. And that's sort of like the same thing with a lot of men are kind of repulsed about like motherhood and things like that. They don't really, it's sort of like a secret to them that they're not fully comfortable with. And I think she represents that. And then he meets Eve and Eve is sort of like the perfect wife. You know, she they have an equal relationship but it's kind of like um, they're partners and then they grow old together and then they have their family and they start their life or whatever and that even when they're cast out of the garden they're still together because they're sharing that experience and they're mature.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's like you can have this relationship but you do need to sacrifice. Like They couldn't... Adam could not have his relationship with the eve version of this person like they could not that version of the relationship doesn't exist in the garden they have to give up the garden in order to gain like the knowledge of each other and themselves that they need to have like a more stable and realistic relationship as opposed to the sort of unstable versions that we see with the lilith and the unnamed wife
1: i think also i mean if you talk about this concept that the genesis of christianity is the bringing together of a lot of mythologies then the story of Eve is almost like the beginnings of like integrating like a matriarchal society into the values of Christianity. And I think that's sort of the genesis, a lot of what in and the kindly ones, which become more important starting at this point and moving forward mm-hmm. is it deals with sort of the matriarchy of like mythology and popular culture and sort of brings in i mean we saw that with barbara and her quest and you know with the you know the witches and things like that that there's sort of this element that's now starting to come together that's sort of gelling which is this like the importance of the female mystique almost in the plot points of the sandman and i think you see that with sort of lita where she's sort of she's indulging her like you know this me time that she's having, where she's just being like a woman and not being a mother. And while she's doing this, while she's indulging in her feminine, like you know, side that she can't express as a mother, her son is off in the dreaming, having this weird story time with the and you know, just sort of interacting with gargoyles and and meeting siblings who have the strangest relationship.
0: Yeah. So then the third story is Abel's story which is essentially his origin. Um, he frames it as, like, a children's story with the little endless, and it's drawn in this, like, cutesy style. And what he basically says is...
1: He kind Kane of Pollyannas st- it over for, you know, he, he makes it child-friendly in that he says, like, we're brothers, and we live next store to each other in different houses. and
0: Yeah, so he basically tells the Cain and Abel story that... Uh, Cain kills Abel. Um, and there's this thing where he's he says that he offered... He doesn't even say God. He says, like, the Lord of the land. And like He offered him the sheep, and he liked it because it was fluffy and funny. And he was like, no, he liked it because it was warm blood, and it was a sacrifice. And which kind of re- reframes, like, what Abel... What Cain does, because it's like, okay. Then he attempts to gain favor through a sacrifice, but because he has no sheep, he sacrifices the only other living thing that's important to him, which is his brother, which makes... Came much sadder than he I think yeah. wants you to think he is
1: because he kind of he describes himself as like a vegetable farmer
0: well yeah well the, the actual idea right i think if you read the bible it's pretty clear that it, it was a it was a text written by a shepherd culture who were suspicious uh at, of the farmers around them so they made them evil
1: well, what do you think about these little endless babies it's cute it's like Muppet Babies. It's kind of like, is there, like, I'm imagining there's so much fan art Oh, about yeah, these I've, I've seen Endless it. babies.
0: And, like, Abel even calls that out. He's like, oh, what are you trying to do? Endless, like, little, endless is ridiculous. And then, so what we find out is that.
1: They kind of look like chibis. They're kind of like, um, anime style. Yeah, characters. they've got the They're huge big eyes. And little tiny noses and.
0: So Abel dies, and he's like the first person that dies, and um, Death and Dream are like, hey, we're making gardens, and Death tries to take Abel, and Dream intercedes and is like, hey, do you want to come live in my garden? And you can tell stories, and he gives him a letter of commission, which he's mentioned before. Right, yeah, that's very important
1: to him, that letter.
0: And then he gets lonely, and and Dream gives Cain a letter of commission, and has him have his own house where he'll tell mysteries, and then they'll be together, and it's sweet. And it's like, ah, oh, Abel still loves his brother, even though he's the biggest fucking asshole in the world, and he keeps killing him and being super mean to him.
1: And then he promptly kills him and says, "I'll be over for dinner tomorrow." To yeah, to cook.
0: It's very sweet, though. I think, even though he kills him. <laughs>
1: well, it's kind of like it's like a John Cheever. I mean, he's just hitting him with the limb, you know. It's kind of like. But he kills him. Good night,
0: brother. He kills him because as they're leaving. Abel rushes out and tells M- Matthew that the what's going on with the Parliament of Rooks is they're storytellers. Right. And that they're judging the story. Um, and then Cain gets really mad and he reiterates this idea that, like, the mystery is what's important and it's the not knowing that will outlive the, the answer. And then he kills Abel. Um, I think Matthew's really interesting in this story. Like, just some of the mechanics where he talks about, like, Oh, about being a bird now and he eats a rat and he's like, you know, I thought I would just be a man in a raven's body, but I'm like 100% a raven and like I want to eat this rat and that's weird, huh? <laughs> well, he just and sort he's...
1: of embraces his base desire of like fully becomes.
0: He says shit a, a lot. Bird.
1: I like that. Kane wants to preserve the this concept of the rooks being storytellers, but able or vice versa. Abel is almost saying that the conversation that the Brooks are having is not a story that's being judged, but a trial. So it's kind of like if they deem that they're not guilty, then they're just left abandoned, mm-hmm. which is kind of like a hard, you know, because they're brothers, they have this weird relationship. But if it's found to be of the way that they want it to be, like the story turns out the way they want, then they're just murdered.
0: Yeah, it's still, like, there's still a mystery is the other thing. Like, even though Abel tells them that they're storytellers, it's still unclear exactly how that's working or what it means if the story is good or not. And, like, why, why are they doing this at all?
1: I think it's interesting, too, that they just... All of the characters in the story just casually accept the fact that Daniel Hall can walk right into the dream world, and that's cool.
0: Well, Matthew's confused at first. At first, he's like, oh, I thought he was a dream, but then he, like, wasn't talking. I guess he's just a baby.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, I thought that was more like him not really understanding things anymore, because he's not quite human anymore.
0: I think he still just doesn't fully understand how the dreaming works, because he's, like, it makes sense for him to just be like, okay, I guess babies can show up. It's not any weirder than anything else that's happened here. Like Thor was over for dinner like a week ago, like yeah. whatever.
1: Well, I don't know. I mean, I thought it was interesting and I think it it mildly pushes the story forward. If anything, it sort of reinforces the value of Daniel to Morpheus. Yeah. yeah. Morpheus is not in this at all, other yeah. than being a little tiny baby, a little yeah. endless in it. But yeah, i like that
0: one. pretty good i liked that one a lot i liked that one i liked all the the weird storytelling and i like all the characters i like all the dreaming characters and i'm glad every time we get to see more of them like even in the hunting which i didn't love i like that we got to see more of lucian and him like trying to deal with this problem like i gotta do this before my boss finds yeah out. and then at the end having to go to his boss and being like look i i goofed up you need to intercede here or we're never gonna get this book back
1: And then, so the final one is Ramadan, which I think is the one that's talked about from this volume the most. It's the most well known. And it's kind of like it's one of those stories where there's a king and he makes a deal with Morpheus.
0: Yeah, so the arts by P. Craig Russell. And so the the concept of this story is that uh, Caliph Harun al Rashid. Uh, is ruling over Baghdad and it's this very um, mythical, folkloric like 1001 Arabian Nights version of Baghdad where it's full of all of these fantastical things that are just happening constantly and it's this beautiful city but Rashid is obsessed with the end, with impermanence, with the fact that eventually the city will be gone and it will fall and the walls will turn to dust and everything will be forgotten and everything he's done will be you know, of of little importance. And it goes back to the ideas from, like, August. Like, this is, like, a king who is obsessed with his own death and with the future of his kingdom. And he's inconsolable, and eventually he comes up with this plan where he takes the this, like, orb that King Solomon created full of demons that he captured and threatens to release all the demons unless Dream intercedes. And Dream shows up, and he makes a deal with him where he basically... He gives him the city, which Dream preserves in a bottle, and so it's like this idea that like this mythical version of Baghdad existed and then became mythical because it was given to Dream and that preserves that version of the city forever, while the real city becomes drab and mundane, and as we see at the very end of the story, like this bombed out war zone, you know, obviously this is a story from the nineties. So it's, like, responding to a lot of, like, the the tension in the Middle East and the Gulf War. And, like, it brings up this idea of, like, it reverses the sort of way that myth works in the real world. Where it's, like, you mythologize a real place, but this is, like... The real place becomes the mythology, and it becomes this sort of, like, unattainable goal that can exist in everyone's mind. No matter how awful the real place becomes. And, you know, it's very much a... A very in a very Neil Gaiman way, it is a story about the the power of stories. It's also a story about like what happens when you when you become obsessed with the end, and like he ends up having he's so obsessed with the end of this beautiful city that he ends up arranging it himself. And again, like Rashid, like so many other characters in this volumes, is ultimately a tragic figure.
1: I I liked aesthetically. I thought this was the most compelling artwork in the whole entire volume I especially love the depiction of because you know how like Morpheus is depicted in the style of who he is interacting with so he has this long um, black and white coat that's like covered with embroidered flowers and the colors are very much like Um, the rugs and the aesthetic and the ceramics of that culture. Mm -hmm. And I think that's very interesting. And I really like the way that when he was going through Baghdad and he was showing Morpheus, the wonders of Baghdad, it was beautifully colored, beautifully rendered compared to what Baghdad looks like after the deal. And it kind of reminded me when he put the city in that bottle that, you know, that whole thing about Sharazad and the storytelling culture, you know, the, the history of storytelling in that culture was sort of, like you said, it was like preserved in this actual physical city. So that when people talked about like Aladdin and the Arabian Nights and there's a mention of the flying carpet, that all of those things are preserved in this sort of symbol of what people think that world look like.
0: Yeah, it goes back to the ideas that are brought up in *Midsummer's Night's Dream in the same way that that story recontextualizes the play as like a metaphysical, what did I call it? A metaphysical nature preserve for fairies. This sort of like recontextualizes A Thousand and One Arabian Nights as this like time capsule for this mythical dream version of Baghdad.
1: You know, it was kind of like, it reminded me, like, well, first of all, I thought, like, is this, like, did he just create a soft place, and the soft place is this this capsule of Baghdad, this sort of magical capsule of this time period? I
0: think this is our insight into how scaries are made.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. But it kind of reminded me, like, a little bit of, like, when we read the Tanith Lee story, that, you know, the Night Master, where there was this sort of bubble world that was like it was out of time it was kind of like a a world that like existed in its own fantasy and there was its own rules and it was kind of contained so like you could come into this world and interact but it would it could never change because it was set like set in a time period like in this Baghdad they're always going to have flying carpets and you know wizards and magical spears that holds you know demons that you can crack open you know it's kind of like a fantasy world that could exist with its own rules that could you know that people could interact
0: with i mean it's i mean it's a metaphor for a story right like a right, glass exactly. bottle is a story we can see that version of baghdad but you can't ever go there because it doesn't exist because it's a story or in the case of the metaphor because it's in case in this glass bottle and it's preserved forever. But then we see at the very end with the the boy, the, I mean, we find out that this whole story is being told by an old man to a young boy in, act, in the actual modern day Baghdad. And we see with the young boy that, like, even this story, whether or not it's real, whether or not it happened, still gives him some measure of hope. And he's thinking, still thinking about the Baghdad in the glass bottle and the the other egg of the phoenix. Which then in turn loops back around to this theme of mysteries where it's like we don't find out. We find out that one egg, phoenix egg, hatches and it's a phoenix. But there's a black egg and we don't know what's in it. That This is like a thing that comes up in the course of the story while Rashid is like going through his treasure vault looking for this demon sphere. And like that mystery and that idea of the like glass city like helps this kid in some small way even though it may or may not have actually happened.
1: I thought it was, I mean, it kind of really didn't have anything to do with anything other than being its own little bubble story. That was just, but I thought it was like a nice, beautiful way to like end the volume. I mean, it ends on a sad note when you realize that like in modern times, they're still trying. It's almost like they're trying to find that like oasis. They're trying to get back to that world, that uh, that story world where things are better.
0: Yeah, I mean that's what everything's going on. Like in a sense it becomes like a fiddler's green. Like it's like this unattainable content that everyone's striving for. I think this is I think like all of the Distant Mirror stories, this is more important to the overall plot than it initially appears. I think there's more of a connection between uh Rashid and Dream than it initially appears in this volume. Right. Like I think as we we'll see in, in towards the end of this story that all of these kings in this volume are essentially reflections of morpheus in some way
1: yeah and you know what's interesting when i originally when i was making my notes and i was reading this i thought oh i didn't like this volume but now that i'm talking about it i can see that there are really good points to this volume and there's a purpose of it because in, in the beginning when i first read it i was like oh this has nothing to do with the overarching storyline but now that when you sort of dissect it and you get into the nuances and the subtleties of the storytelling that's going on, you realize that it really does have a lot to do with what's coming up in Volume 7, and then finally towards the ultimate end of the series, which we're coming up to pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah. So, so I mean, I thought it was originally a disappointment, but I kind of feel like it wasn't.
0: Yeah. I, like I said, I think it's uneven, but I think there's a lot of good stuff here. I think the problem with this is, like, if you had never read Sandman before and you just got to this volume, it would feel... I think it would feel weird and it would feel like a disappointment because all of this stuff, like, it requires context from later on, which is cool. Like, I like, like being able to read the later volume and have stuff click together. But, like, as it is right now, it is just this weird, like, okay, why, why are we talking about all these kings now?
1: See, I think thing is i might have it might have been interesting if there was an edition where the volumes were put together consecutively and the interludes were interfiled into the other stories so they showed up at the point where they're supposed to show up so maybe if there were like interfiled and it wasn't four stories about a king mm-hmm. it might be a different experience but then again reading all the stories about the Kings, like you said, the brief lives and all the like sort of little bubble collections that he puts together. Maybe there's two kinds of ways to read it and get two experiences from reading the volumes. Cause I know originally, I think you mentioned it in the last one there, the volumes were actually put together differently in the beginning. There's two versions of the 10 volumes.
0: Yeah. And there's like some of these issues are out of order with the other issues we've read. Well, like, this Ramadan issue, issue 5th, uh, is, like, was delayed because the art took a really long time because it's very complicated. Like, we touched on that a little bit, but, like, the art by P. Craig Russell is this, like, incredibly, like, packed full of detail and, like, dense with, like, illustrations and it, like, shifts back and forth between looking like stained glass and looking like a tapestry and, like... Yeah. Mixing in and out of all these styles. like I could see why this would have taken a very long time to complete.
1: Well, I'm very excited, especially since Eve mentioned it in her storytelling, this sort of genesis of The Kindly Ones. And I think once we get further into the series, The Kindly Ones, become, I mean, they're sort of hinted at.
0: I mean, they've showed up a several times Right, before. but they've
1: really come into the importance of the story moving forward. And I think it's it was kind of like a good, almost backhanded introduction to them. I mean, compared to... We see them fully formed in the doll's house, but how did they get the way that they are?
0: Yeah. So. No, I, yeah. Like I said, I, I think this volume's good in that it adds a lot of context. This volume is good when it is adding context to other stuff in Sandman. And I think it kind of falls flat when it's just sort of like stuff like Thermidor where it's just sort of like even that in the like within the Distant Mirrors thing I think has the least to do like that's a story about people killing kings whereas all the other Distant Mirrors stories are about kings that are dying or that are obsessed with their own death or the death of their their kingdoms. Right. I guess Thermidor is essentially like a cautionary tale It's like This is what can happen if a king does not plan in the way that, like, Augustus and Rashid did. I don't know.
1: I kind of got the impression that Neil Gaiman was saying that, like, whoops, Pierre is a variant of a type of king. Mm -hmm. Like, that they were replacing the monarchy with something that, in essence, was sort of a you know, non-monarchal, if that's even a real word, version of a king. Sure, yeah.
0: So. Well, there's also like another parallel between that, like Thermidor, they like rename the months and it's like these are what the months are going to be called now. And Rosepear is like convinced that that's how it's going to be going forward and then those names are not used anymore. And then in August, Lysias is like, hey, you name this month after yourself. It's called August now because of you. And Augustus is like, yeah, no, it's not, but not forever. Like, in a few years, it'll be named something different. And he's wrong. Like, it is, it continues to be called August.
1: Right. So, next up is Brief Lives, which is Volume 7.
0: Yeah, but that's not the next episode.
1: No, no, that's the next Sandman episode. Oh, yes,
0: yes. The next Sandman episode will be Brief Lives, which will be Volume 7. We're in the home stretch. It's it's Volume 7, Brief Lives, then... Volume 8 is... World's End? Yeah, Volume 8 is World's End. Volume 9 is The Kindly Ones. And then Volume 10 is The Wake. That's the last one. World's End is interesting because it's essentially like... What if you took one of these... Um, convergences stories and that was the whole volume.
1: Yeah, interesting.
0: <laughs> uh, so we see him... like It's cool to see him playing around with that structure here... And then doing a much it on a much grander scale later on. But before that we have to deal with Breed Lives... Which should be cool. Um, And then before that...
1: Now, I don't remember what we had decided, so it's going to be a mystery to me. So why don't you reveal to us that we're doing a novella. I know
0: that. Yeah, we're doing another novella. We are going to be talking about All Systems Read by Martha Wells, which is the first book in the Murderbot Diaries. It won the Hugo Award for novella in
1: 2018, right? She's an interesting writer because she has a really um great reputation as a fantasy young adult writer so this is her first big breakout science fiction i had never read
0: any of her stuff before this i mean i don't read a ton i don't read a ton of young adult stuff which is um i don't know maybe a oh you know what i did actually read a thing she wrote before i think she wrote a star wars novel that i read
1: i Um, i think i talked briefly about this because i had read the novella previously to this One of the things that I really liked about it, it has a level of sophistication in that it's one of those science fiction stories where it's not front heavy on explaining the world building. So you're kind of dropped right into the novella and you have to, as a reader, be sort of invested in picking up the hints that she puts in there about what is actually going on. You know about you know what is this world about? the what robots? What what is the things that are going on in this world that she builds? And I think that's a very interesting, smart take on like a modern science fiction story.
0: Yeah, well, tune in for the next episode, and you'll get to hear us talk about that. Um, I know you're saying you're saying, oh, you know what we need is more of the hosts of dried up brain talking about world building. There's definitely not enough of that on the internet, so get excited for more of that. <laughs>
1: What more world? I'm
0: saying it's a topic we return to a lot.
1: Can I talk about world building if I don't talk about?
0: Sighting? Yes. (laughs) Spoiler
1: Spoiler alert. alert!
0: Stay tuned, and sweet dreams.
1: Bye, everyone.